Exodus chapter 4, as we continue to work our way through this uh, unfolding story of God's work, redeeming Israel, making Israel his own, taking Israel out of slavery and to the land he promised. Um, If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible in the pew somewhere near you. And I believe uh, the text we're going to read, we're going to start reading in verse 18, uh, but that is, I think, on page 47, uh, 47 or 48 of that pew Bible. Now, uh, before we begin, I do want to, uh, uh, one of them just immediately ran because she knew what I was about to do. But I want to, uh, I actually want to say for just a, uh, just a moment, just to say with more here that we did have guests in our Sunday school hour. Their names are in the bulletin, so you can read them there. I'm not going to say them, Uh, but this is a couple we are looking at partnering with for ministry purposes in the Middle East, and so uh, they will be here this afternoon from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the fellowship hall. I would encourage you greatly to come meet them one-to-one, ask them questions, get to hear their story, their heart. Uh, it, we went to dinner with them last night, and Steve and Andrea joined us, and it was just a great time to hear all that God has done. And there's only so much you can do in a Sunday school hour. It's even hard to call it an hour when it's 45 minutes, all right? So in a Sunday school three-quarter hour. So uh, I would encourage you, come tonight. But uh, if you'll stand... They're not on camera, we're not seeing, but this, this is him, and that's her, all right? So him and her are going to be here this afternoon, and uh, I would just encourage you to come and, and to meet with them. Uh, it's just encouraging to hear the Lord stirring up his people to go to places where the gospel uh, is almost practically unknown, uh, uh, 0.04%. Uh, evangelical in the place where they will go. And so that represents, I think he said, over uh, 83 million souls that will spend eternity somewhere. And so these are important works that we are considering, right? Yeah. Exodus 4, we're going to read verse 18 to the end of the chapter, and then I will pray and, and, and we'll begin looking at these verses. This is what the Spirit says. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold... I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint 
and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, these are your words spoken for your people, that we might know you and love you and serve you. And so we pray today that your spirit will be our teacher, our help. I pray that you will empower me by your spirit to serve you faithfully, to serve your people well. I pray as a result of looking at this text that we will be strengthened as a body of believers and that those who don't know the Lord Jesus will come home to him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, at a fundamental level, every Christian is called. In fact, the word called is another way to simply describe a Christian. Paul does this in Romans chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, he calls them, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He does it later in the letter. You remember this, maybe this verse is familiar, that, that God works all things together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Just two verses later, he says, whom, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. Called and Christian are actually synonyms. Beyond that, we often use the word called to say that God has special work for a person to do, or that God wants a particular person to go to a particular place to do a particular work, so that one might say, I am called to be a missionary. Or someone might say, uh, I, am, I feel called to serve the Lord in Cameroon or in India or in Uruguay or in some other nation or in a pulpit. And certainly God does that. He calls some to extraordinary tasks in extraordinary places. But it's also true there's a, that there's a sense in which God calls each of us to serve Him wherever He sets us down, no matter what job we may be doing. Whether we are moms or dads, married, single, students, engineers, nurses, carpenters, factory workers, farmers, salespeople, whatever it is, we are called to work as unto the Lord, and we are called to serve the Lord in whatever it is that He sets us down to do. We're to let our light shine, aren't we, so that people see our good deeds and glorify God with us. We're to be the salt of the earth, preserving righteousness in a, dark, in, a, in a bitter place. We're to show mercy. We're to love our neighbor. We're to speak words that give grace and point others to truth, to the Savior, to Jesus Christ. This is the call on our life. But 
But there are these special calls that we see in the Bible, these ones that seem more set apart. And in Exodus 3 and 4, we see one of these, don't we? We see a time, and none of us are going to be called to rush over to Egypt and to free uh, all of God's people from slavery. This is a very unique call at a unique time in history. But God calls, God calls Moses to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh to uh, lead his people out of Egypt and to the promised land. And today, we've looked at much of that, but today the Lord sends Moses on his way from Midian back to Egypt. But as God does it, He doesn't just send him off the way, you know, uh, a a mom might put their new kindergartner on the school bus, you know, with tears rolling down his eyes, hoping everything goes well. No, he gets on the bus with Moses. He's going to go with him. His words go with him. He will go. He will make sure that what needs to be done will be done, which is what every mother of every kindergartner wants to do, isn't it? Get on the bus with them. Just sit in the back. I'm going to make sure they're okay. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but before we begin, I, we're going to look at exactly what God does for Moses on the way. But before we begin, I just want, in full disclosure, I am not even going to begin to touch verses 27 to 31, okay? The, the net net is what God said would happen, happens. He sends Aaron out to meet Moses. They reunite Moses relays all that they're supposed to do, so they go, they deliver the message to the elders of Israel like they're supposed to, they do the signs like they're supposed to, and the people believe just like God said they would. And then the the chapter closes with this wonderful verse, and the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Friend, if you ever need just a, just a reminder of why it is, one of the reasons, apart from just who God is, of why we worship, He sees, He knows, and He hasn't left. It's a beautiful ending, isn't it, before things begin to ramp up. But how is it that Moses gets from the mountain to that moment. That's what we're going to look at, all right? The first thing that we see in this second half of Exodus 4 is that God encourages Moses. God encourages Moses. He gives encouragement. Now, this is nothing new, is it? If you just read all that we've read before, if we were to go back and recap, you'll find that every time Moses gives an objection, God gives encouragement that should strengthen him to get beyond that objection. Well, Moses says, who am I? And God says, I'll be with you. Well, that's actually encouragement. They won't believe me, Moses says. No, 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 but they'll believe me, God says and they'll believe my signs. He is encouraging him all the way, and as Moses takes off, he just sends him with more encouragement. And there are four things that that are encouraging here. The first bit of encouragement comes through the blessing of Jethro. All right, verse 18, uh, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now, you may want to put your hand up immediately and ask Moses a question and say, that seems a bit misleading. I mean, you're not really going back just to check on them. 
You're not just going back to make sure they've still got a pulse, to make sure that as they are suffering, as they are afflicted, as they're oppressed, they're just not dying. That's not what you're, you're not going as a journalist to Egypt. So why would he put it that way? Well, maybe he doesn't want Jethro to worry about his wife and his grandchildren, you know, his daughter and grandchildren. Maybe uh, he uh, is still uncertain exactly what he's going to do once he gets there. But the thing I want to point out to you is that actually God nowhere told Moses to say this to Jethro, okay? This is different than God telling Moses to go ask for a three-day journey into the wilderness, We don't have any indication that this is what the Lord told Moses to say. Moses is just on his own here. So this brings me to a place where I just want to pause and take one quick sidestep that as you're reading the Bible, you're going to come across dialogue between human beings. Sometimes that dialogue, you know, God says, say this, and then they go and they say that. But a lot of times people are just speaking. And as with human beings today, I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes people lie Sometimes people mislead. Sometimes people even misunderstand the truth. Do you remember the question that the disciples asked Jesus in John chapter 9 with the man born blind? Well, who is it that sinned, Jesus? Was it him or was it his parents? Well, now, are we to take that as like and make that part of our systematic theology? No. But it's what happened. That, so when you're, reading, when you're reading dialogue, when you're reading these historical sections, just know that this dialogue... This statement is true in the sense that this is what was really said, okay? But the narrator of whatever book it is or the whole teaching of the Bible will either confirm that it is a true and good statement or that it's not. It'll correct it. It'll contradict it, okay? So, side note over. But that's how we should read those historical dialogues. Uh, this is why Job's friends are way off, right? They, they almost sound right, but they're not. And so it is true because those are the dialogues, but not everything they say reflects biblical truth. That's the thing that we have to keep in mind. That's why you have to discern when you, when you read your Bible. So Moses asks for this for this. Uh, to let him go back, and, and, and Jethro gives him this blessing. Go in peace. Go in shalom. Go in prosperity. Go in success. May it be well with you as you go. Without really even knowing, and this was like a standard exit. This is a standard goodbye. But what a blessing, isn't it? Go and be successful in whatever it is you're going to do. Jethro has no clue what he's going to do. He just says, go in peace. Go be successful. Isn't it wonderful? Jethro is clueless, and God is encouraging Moses through this well-wishing of success, of prosperity, of whatever he puts his hand to. It's going to come to pass. Isn't it great when people don't even realize that they're encouraging you? Like some neighbor, some coworker happens to notice some bit of character, how you handled a conflict or the way you treated someone who was suffering or something else, and they come to you and say, this was, this was wonderful. This is, this is a wonderful thing. They don't even know that what they're encouraging is the fruit of the Spirit. And yet the Lord encourages sometimes with, without, without it being, you know, we're going to sit down and I'm going to encourage you right now. 
All right, so get ready. Sometimes it just comes from an unknown place. The second bit of encouragement actually comes through the news from Egypt. Verse 19, And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who, are, who were seeking your life are dead. Now, it was a common practice in the ancient world when a new government came to power that all of the penalties that, that were issued under the old government uh, were canceled. And so... The Pharaoh who wanted Moses dead is now dead. All of the wanted posters and all of the post offices have come down. There's Dog the Bounty Hunter has now gone into retirement. He's not coming after him anymore. The threat to his life is no more. Now, please understand, God is not saying, Hey, Moses, I've checked it out and the coast is clear. We can finally get to what we were going to do as if the presence of the former Pharaoh would have hindered the creator of the universe from doing what he wants to do. Now, God is telling Moses, what you thought was an impossible obstacle is out of the way now. What a sweet encouragement to Moses' soul, isn't it? The Lord not only removes the obstacle in the death of Pharaoh... But he comes to him and he tells him so that his load is lightened. He says, go, go on, Moses. I've already been there. I'm already at work. You'll just be joining me. Of course, there will still be other obstacles, but the Lord is aware of them all, and none of them are going to stop his work. This should spur Moses on. It should really spur us on too, shouldn't it? You see, whether our calling is in our home or in an office or in a ministry or on a mission field, there are plenty of obstacles that lay before us because we have an enemy who works against us, don't we? We do, but God is with us. We may see hard obstacles and then see them removed, or maybe we're just thinking there might be obstacles, right? We just wrestle with all the what-ifs. Well, what if they say that? Well, what if they do that? Well, what if it doesn't go right? Well, what if, well, what if, well, what if, well, what if? And we'll just what-if ourselves right into bed with the covers over our head, and we'll never get out and do anything. And then they never come to fruition. But the thing is, is that even in the end, whatever obstacles may actually be there, whether they're removed or whether we'd have to face them head-on, God's Word will not return void. His work will go on. His saving purposes for humanity cannot be thwarted. That should encourage us. That should keep us going. He is with us. As much as Jethro may have said, go in peace, God is actually saying, go in peace. We're going to get it done. And so Moses goes. And if you see in verse 20, he loads up his wife and his sons, and they're headed back to Egypt. And then this What may seem like nothing is actually quite significant. This last sentence, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now, isn't it interesting that 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 he didn't record taking anything else? This is he's got his wife, he's got his kids, and he's got the staff. Why does that matter? Because remember, the staff of the staff of God is the visible reminder that God's power will be perfected in Moses' weakness. God is going to work. Moses is like that staff. Can't do anything unless he's in the hand of God. 
And so it's, it's a wonderful reminder that this whole venture that he's about to set out on is not about him. It's about God and God's power. Well, the third bit of encouragement comes through the knowledge of God's sovereignty. Look at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that we will not so that he will not let the people go. So these signs that he is to perform for the elders of Israel, he's also to perform for Pharaoh. They're meant to be a kind of vindication that he has actually been sent by God on this mission. He is to be God's representative. Great. But then there are these words, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. We hear those words and questions just start flowing, don't they? You just start thinking, what does that mean? How did it happen? Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Wouldn't it just be easier if he just softened him up and in the first request he just said, all right, y'all go. Wouldn't that be easier? What, what is God doing? Why would he do this? What, did, what relationship does this have to do with my ability to make real choices in life? I mean, all manner of questions can come up when you hear those words in the Bible, can't they? And later on, as you keep reading, you find out this whole business of the hard heart is written in different ways at different times. Sometimes, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Sometimes, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes, it's just stated as a matter of fact. Pharaoh's heart is hard. What are we supposed to think about all of these things? Well, one verse from the Apostle Paul is, is helpful here. There's much that could be said, but I just want to read one verse. Romans 9, 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, Pharaoh is not a surprise to God. He is not Satan's sneak attack, as it were. God is actually the one who put him where he is as part of his divine purposes. And what's compelling is that the harder Pharaoh's heart is, the greater Pharaoh's heart opposition is, the more Pharaoh digs in his heels the more glory God gets when he breaks him of it. This is all about, this is why he says he's done this, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It is all about God's glory. Now, there is so much more that can be said there, but this text is not about that in particular. When we come to these words in, in Exodus 4, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Let me, let me make sure we're very clear. When you're reading the Bible, you don't just go and you find a topic and then you just do like your own topical thing about it. You've got to find out why is this here? Why would God tell Moses this? God is not giving Moses a philosophical puzzle to put together. God is giving Moses a reassuring reality that he can hang on to. You see, no matter how bad it gets, 
Not for one moment will Pharaoh have squirmed his way out of God's sovereign hand. One commentator just said in in four words, Pharaoh is God's plaything. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how much opposition is there, don't think for a moment, Moses, that this has exceeded the sovereign power of God, that somehow it's gotten out of control, that somehow God has lost His grip on the steering wheel of the universe, because that is absolutely not true. There is not one moment of opposition that Moses will face outside of God's sovereign power. I mean, Pharaoh has great power, but God has supreme power. Listen to the way that Isaiah described the rulers of the world in Isaiah 40. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when He, God, blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Let me ask you a question. If God called you to go somewhere, and what he said was, when you get there, I just want you to know their hearts are going to be harder than you could possibly imagine. But I will prevail. Is it going to matter? Of course it will matter that their hearts are hard. But don't you think that will keep you going? If he just says, I'll prevail... I mean, every team says that before the game starts, right? But if he says it's going to look like they're going to win, it's going to look like we're not getting out. But that's all my doing. And I will conquer, I will prevail. How encouraging is that? It's like he's saying, Moses, his, his heart will be hard. Things are going to get worse before they get better. But just remember, one puff of my mouth, and he will be like the wisps of a dandelion. <sighs> Gone. Now, friend, that should encourage you and me as we seek to serve the Lord in this world, shouldn't it? no matter what the opposition is that we face, no matter whether or not biblical morality is reflected in society's status, in society's values, no matter who sits on the throne of a nation, no matter how often a co-worker or a friend or a neighbor shuts down the gospel conversation, no matter how hard your spouse's heart is, no matter how hard your child's heart is, God has absolute power and absolute control over absolutely everything at absolutely every moment. And we can trust Him. We can trust Him when things seem to get worse rather than better, when it feels like our service is going nowhere, it's producing nothing. We can trust Him and be encouraged because God is sovereign. And so I can keep going. In fact, because He is sovereign, I must keep going. It's glorious. 
The last bit of encouragement that Moses gets is through God's commitment to his people. Verses 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now here we see God's intimacy and relationship with his people. Israel is his firstborn son. Being the firstborn son was a place of privilege. It was a place of blessing. The firstborn son, as he matured, would represent the father. He would be devoted to God in the law. The firstborn had the greatest inheritance. And here the whole nation of Israel is called God's firstborn son. The whole nation has a privileged position. They have God's fatherly attention. And what we have in these verses is a solemn warning for Pharaoh. God will not allow his firstborn to be oppressed, afflicted, beaten down by evil without stepping in. And if Pharaoh refuses to yield, to relent, to let them go, he'll lose his firstborn son. Those are sobering words, friends. God will rescue his people and nothing will stand in his way. It's both hopeful for the people of God and tragic, isn't it? It's both all it's both in the same the same breath. It's the it's the reality it's the reality that awaits all humanity at the end, isn't it? It is both hopeful and it is tragic all at the same time. The hope of belonging to God and the tragedy of being separated from God, both and realities that will set in. It's not a, it's not a moment to, you know, uh, pump our fist and, and talk about us and them kind of thing. It's actually just a place to bow our heads in reverence before God. Now, of course, this warning foreshadows the tenth and final plague, but actually there's more Think about the encouragement this is to Moses. God won't allow Egypt's tyranny to stand. It will come to an end. Moses, your mission will succeed no matter what it takes. I'll see to it. Now, for us today... That assurance that God will accomplish His work is encouraging to us, isn't it? That He will come again. We rejoice in His coming again, don't we? You know, when, if you were to look out to see, to see the faces and the hands when we sang, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Or, we rejoice in that, don't we? 
But what comes along with that, friends? The reality of hell comes with it. The reality of eternal conscious punishment for all who refuse the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a solemn rejoicing. But this is the day that will come. Our enemy will fight us every step of the way as we do the Lord's work, won't he? He will prowl. He will seek to devour. He will seek to distract. He will seek to discourage. But his tyranny will not stand. It'll come to an end so that we know that the work we give our time to, the work we give money to, the work we pray for, the work we send missionaries for, it is no fool's errand. God will do what He says He will do. In Revelation 7, when we have this picture of men and women from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation around the throne rejoicing in the Savior, rejoicing in their salvation, this is not a dream. It is not a wish. It's a promise. And God will get it done. He will not fail. Friend, do you want to be part of something that won't fail? Then do the work of God. Put the gospel on your lips and get it to the ends of the earth and get it to the end of your street. Because in the end, you won't fail. God's Word will not return void. Can you imagine receiving all of this from the Lord? Moses is walking along, and he's who knows how he's getting. I mean, this is just wonderful. I don't know if he's walking along, and this is, you know, we have no idea how this is all transpiring, right? But it's just glorious, isn't it? All of the self-doubt, God still knows him. So, I mean, well, I'll encourage you through Jethro. Oh, let me give you a bit of news about Egypt. Let me remind you who's in control. And why don't I just assure you, I'm going to win. That'll keep you going, won't it? It should. It should. Don't, 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 open, don't open the book of Revelation so you can fill in your charts and, and, and your graphs. Read the book of Revelation so you go share Christ with your neighbor. Read the book of Revelation so you'll have hope in the midst of the worst tragedies of life. Read the book of Revelation so you remember that Christ wins and we win with him. And we win because of him. What encouragement God gives us. There is no other so sure and steady. Our hope is held in His hands. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon that rock we will stand. Well, God not only gives encouragement, God requires obedience. Just briefly to maybe the strangest encounter you will read between God and a human being. Verses 24 to 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. 
When Zipporah took, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her, his, her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So let him alone. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now that's just a strange moment, isn't it? And there are plenty of questions that are left unanswered. Was this another appearance of the angel of the Lord here? Uh, how is it that Moses sought, you know, how is it that the Lord sought to take Moses' life? How did Zipporah know that that was happening? How did she know what to do? Is, is the word feet here literal? Is it euphemistic for something? I mean, what, what, what exactly is going on here? Well, when you find out, you tell me. All right? But one of the commentators, Peter Inns, said there are basically three safe assumptions we can make here, all right? The Lord's wrath is against Moses. That's first. Second, the Lord's wrath is because his son is not circumcised. And third, the Lord's wrath is appeased when Zipporah, his wife, Moses' wife, circumcises the child. So what I want to do, actually, as we look at this, is to focus on what's clear and not on what's unclear. The issue of circumcision was not a matter of preference. It wasn't like it is today when you're in the delivery room. Oh, do you want to circumcise your son or not circumcise your son? There was no question. It was, oh, you want to circumcise your son. I mean, it was just period. Eighth day, circumcision. But this had not happened. God had commanded it back in Genesis 17. He said, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You see, it was unthinkable that an Israelite male would be uncircumcised. That's part and parcel of what it meant to be part of God's people. Now, as an aside, today we live in a relationship with God under a new covenant a different covenant, not one of physical birth at all, but of spiritual birth, being born again by the Spirit of God. But there is an external sign to that internal work, and we witnessed it last week. It is baptism. So as with circumcision in Moses' day, baptism for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is actually not a matter of preference. Do I want to go along or do I not want to go along? Is this something I want to add to my faith or not add to my faith? It's actually commanded. And so in a sense, it's unthinkable that a Christian, especially in our context when it is so readily available, would not be baptized. It is part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus, is to profess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through baptism. Now, back to Moses. One of his sons isn't circumcised. And it was the father's responsibility to make sure that gets done. And so Moses is actually in disobedience to the Lord. As, think about this. He's in disobedience to the Lord as he goes off to serve the Lord. Right? He's going to go off. He's going to speak the words of God. He's going to do the deeds of God. But he hasn't obeyed the covenant of God. And essentially God won't have it. And so he comes against Moses. He meets him. That's, that's an understatement, isn't it? <laughs> he met him on the road. Oh, and sought to kill him. 
It's not like any meeting I hope to have this week. But here he is. He's calling. He's going to call the people of God to trust the Lord. He's going to bring them his law, (laughs) and he's not obeying. And so uh, he is struck in some manner. And Zipporah takes action, circumcises her son, and then calls Moses bridegroom of blood. In other words, she was sure to lose him. But the blood that was shed there brought him back to her. It's like their whole, it's like their, it's a strange vowel renewal, you know, ceremony, you know, vowel renewal ceremony. But she has him back. You see, the thing that I think we ought to take from this unusual moment is that the one who serves the Lord publicly must obey the Lord privately. There's no sense in which it is acceptable for Moses to go off and to seek to serve the Lord if he is unwilling to serve the Lord in his own life. It's why Jesus is so agitated with the Pharisees, isn't it? In Matthew 23, he says, they preach but do not practice. They preach but don't practice. It's why the New Testament goes on in in, in 1 Timothy and in Titus to give us qualifications for those who would be elders and for deacons. They're to be models of obedience. You see, there's no amount of leadership skill. There's no preaching expertise. There's no financial wisdom that makes up for a disobedient life. In God's economy, obedience is an absolute You are not qualified to serve the Lord if you are not committed to obey. Are you committed to obeying the Lord? You see, competency is useless without character. And so God stops him and will not let it happen. And through the appeasing of his wrath by the circumcision, Moses may now serve. God encourages those who serve him. God requires obedience of those who serve him. This whole notion of the necessity of obedience is the reason why Jesus is the only fit Savior that there is. Because you see, even with our commitments to obey the Lord, we still disobey the Lord, don't we? There is no one perfect in obedience save Jesus. He is the righteous one. He alone is without sin. And this perfect man, this God-man, came to give his life. And God the Father met Jesus in much the same way that the Lord met Moses. And he met him on a hill outside Jerusalem. And he poured out his wrath on him at that place. You see, unlike with Moses, uh, uh, the Father didn't simply seek to kill Jesus. He did it. 
Isaiah 53 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And yet Jesus' life isn't taken because of his sins, but because of ours. Our sins were laid on him. He took our place. His blood was shed to satisfy God's wrath against us so that we'd never face his wrath, but be forgiven and made right with God. Jesus, in a different way, is our bridegroom of blood. But it was his blood that was shed. And he did it to bring us back to God so that we belong to God. And the reality is, is that there will come a day when God will meet each one of us. On that day when this life ends, He will either welcome us home as His children or He'll refuse us at the gate of heaven and the only thing that will be left will be wrath. Because we saw Jesus, we saw His sacrifice, His cross, His blood, and we ignored it or we mocked it or we turned from it. Don't turn away from Jesus. Turn to Him. He's the only one who has perfectly obeyed God. The only way you can get into heaven is with perfect obedience to God. And when you come to trust in Jesus, His perfect obedience is credited to you so that you gain entrance into heaven by His merit, not your own. Our own is just filthy rags. But Jesus Christ provides a cloak that never wears out, that we wear forever, the robes of His righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you have spoken to us in your word. And we know that even where questions abound in our minds about one scene or another, they do not abound in yours. That you have spoken all that we need to know. We thank you that you encourage us along the way as we seek to serve you, and we recognize that you require obedience of us, that there are different kinds of vessels in a house, some for common use and some for sanctified, set-apart uses, and we want to be those who are for the special use, for your use, for your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to remain committed to obeying you. Help us to serve you faithfully this week in whatever call you have placed on us in our home or out of our home, knowing that in the end, that only what's done for Christ will last. Thank you for that encouragement, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.